0: Overcoming Bitterness, Part 2, and Acts, Chapter 7 on the Gray Snapper Podcast. Wow, that was... You can't just go wailing on a guitar. (laughs) Okay. Welcome to the Gray Snapper Podcast, the podcast of Grace Church of Napa Valley. I'm your host, Jess Arns. All right, on today's show, we're going to do a quick encouragement, get back into dealing with the topic of bitterness. Specifically, we're going to talk about forgiveness, and then we're going to read from the book of Acts chapter 7. Super awesome stuff. So let's start with the quick encouragement from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9. We're going to read all the way through verse 12. It says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will I just, uh, I love this passage where Paul expresses his heartfelt love for the people in Col- Colossae, which uh, is actually a place that he had not been to, so these were people he'd heard of, but had not seen face to face. And I love how he talks about this. He heard of their faith, and so they have not ceased to pray for them. He he had not ceased to pray for them since he heard of it. And, um, and I love what it is that he prays for. He prays that they're understanding of God's will would be, they'd be filled up with that and with wisdom that is spiritual and that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, right? To please him. So this is really important. You know, this, when we pray for people we are expressing what we want for them here, Paul's expressing his desire for the Colossians, that they, these are all spiritual desires, spiritual blessings that he is asking God for them and that they would be strengthened with power so that they would, be steadfast and patient and joyful in giving thanks to God. And he ends, of course, with this that God is the one who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. His kingdom, that inheritance, He's the one that qualified us for it. And it wasn't our works or our own goodness. So, pretty awesome. So, for you as a believer, if you believe in Christ, you have been qualified by His doing, you've been qualified for that eternal inheritance. And so now, my prayer for you is this, that you would be filled with all spiritual wisdom and the knowledge of His will, and that you would walk in a manner worthy of Him, to please Him. And if you do that, if that is what God accomplishes in your heart, you'll bear fruit in every good work, you'll be strengthened, and you will have patience and joy. That's pretty awesome stuff, what it means to walk with God. All right, let's move back into our weekly warning. This week's warning is continuing from last week on the topic of bitterness, and I want to just warn you about the temptation, temptation to justify and hold on to your bitterness. Our culture wants to uh, inflame the sort of victim mentality And focus on your trauma and focus on your pain and go over and over and over on that. And then to exact vengeance on those who inflicted it. And sometimes you are legitimately hurt and sometimes you imagine the hurt. Uh, Sometimes you twist the knife and make it worse. And so I just want to warn you about focusing in on your hurts and the things that cause you to be bitter and justifying your bitterness. I'm not saying that we justify the sin of others or justify the abuse of others, but what I am saying is that we should not justify our bitterness. And so, we're going to read from the book of Luke, uh, chapter 17, and of course this is coming from uh, the book Lou Pri- by Lou Priolo on bitterness. It's a little booklet on this issue. Lou Priolo wrote it, and so I'm going based off of his outline as we talk about this topic. So he references Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 10. I want to read this to you. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Okay, stop there. It's interesting how he starts with be on your guard. Right? This is something that you have to uh, be aware of okay that if your brother sins against you re- recognize don't just let it go okay if he sins don't don't just let it go and act like it didn't happen and also don't hold on to bitterness when he repents okay those are both pitfalls when someone sins against you to just pretend it didn't happen and not deal with it or when he does repent to hold it against him still right so if he repents forgive him verse 4 and if he sins against you 7 times a day and returns to you 7 times saying I repent then forgive him the apostles said to the lord increase our faith okay this is a this is tough right this is why when paul prays he prays for internal strengthening because what jesus calls us to is um, is a pretty high calling to forgive someone who sins against you 7 times in a day and then comes back and says I repent each time It takes faith to do that. Verse six, the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat. Will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. And so to see what Jesus is saying here is that this thing that seems so difficult and so impossible, uh, we don't deserve a medal for forgiving others. This is what we ought to have done. This is, this is what's expected of Jesus' disciples, of his servants, that we forgive those who wrong us. This is what we ought to have done. This is not some amazing thing that we should deserve credit for when we do it. See, that's what we should expect from ourselves. That's what we should expect from one another in terms of uh, in, in the church is that we should readily forgive others. Well, so we're going to talk about forgiveness um, and the basics of forgiveness as it re- as it relates to the issue of bitterness. Again, coming from Perillo's book, he says this, Forgiveness, number one, is to be granted only if a sin has been committed against you. Okay, catch that? Forgiveness is granted in the case of sin. Jesus said if your brother sins. He didn't say if he doesn't give you what you want, or if he lets you down, or if he hurts your feelings, or profoundly disappoints you. Your brother may do any or all of those things in the process of sinning, but he's not in need of your forgiveness unless he sins against you. If what your brother has done to upset you is not a sin, it may be appropriate for you to talk with him about the matter at some point, but not before your thinking about the offense has changed. In other words, it's not your offender who must repent, but you must repent if your unbiblical thinking took took offense at something that God did not. Okay, so if you took offense to something, that does not mean that someone sinned. Okay, and so in that case, if you're offended, but it's not some, over something that's an issue of sin, then it's you who needs to change, not the other person. Okay, secondly, sometimes the offended party must initiate forgiveness. Okay, if you cannot overlook the transgression, as Proverbs nineteen eleven says, or cover it in love, as First Peter 4, 8 says, then you are obligated as a Christian to go to a brother who has sinned against you and rebuke him. Okay? Again, we, we are not really at liberty to just let it go. Again, we're, we're talking about issues of sin. Okay? Some, but sometimes we must go to the sinning brother and tell him about his sin with the intention of being able to grant him forgiveness. Your intention in bringing up the issue is not to punish, but in order to reconcile, to grant forgiveness. That is the purpose. But he sinned against me. Why does this sin obligate me to go to him? Didn't Jesus say somewhere that he's supposed to come to me before he brings his gift to the altar? Well, yes, he did. In Matthew 5.23, Jesus tells us to seek forgiveness from those whom we've offended. In that passage, the offending party is told to go. But we're looking at Luke 17, which says that the offended party should go. Okay, so since you, as the offended party, are the one who knows about the wrongdoing, then you are to go. The one who knows about the offense is the one who goes. Okay, so if you were the one who sinned, then you go. If you are aware that you are sinned against, then you go. Perhaps your offender doesn't know about a sinner. Maybe he doesn't want to seek reconciliation. Or perhaps, uh, which happens frequently, he could be. it could be that there is a misperception on someone's part that requires a discussion to clear up the issue. It might even be discovered that no real sin was actually committed when you go and talk to them. Okay, so so first, forgiveness is granted if a sin has been committed. And then sometimes, you, the offended person, might have to go initiate the forgiveness. Number three, forgiveness is costly. When you forgive someone, it costs you something. And that's tremendously expensive. It costs you the price of the offense that you forgive. But more importantly, what it costs you is is minute compared to what it costs the Lord Jesus to forgive you. That's why unforgiveness is such a heinous crime in the eyes of him who is the judge of the whole earth. There's a parable of the unforgiving servant found in Matthew 18. And that, that that servant who had been forgiven so much and then pleaded for the master's forgiveness, then turned around and refused to forgive one of his fellow servants. God calls that person prote- calls that, that person a wicked person. He says in Matthew 18, 32, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had the mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? and his lord moved with anger handed him over to the torturers until it sh- he should repay all that was owed him so in light of how much you have been forgiven by god for you to not forgive those who offend you is wickedness it doesn't matter how much the, uh, the offense that you are struggling you know it doesn't matter how much um you've been sinned against by comparison your offenses against god And the hurt that you put his son through are minute. It's even more wicked for you as a Christian not to forgive than for your pagan friends who have not experienced God's forgiveness and haven't been given the Holy Spirit with the power to forgive. See, you have to remember this. The debt that you owe God for your sins is humanly incalculable incalculable, and it's completely unpayable. You have no way to pay it. You could never repay God. It's like trillions and trillions of dollars worth of debt and 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 crimes against God that you have stacked up and you are internal, eternally indebted to Him, and yet Christ, the Maker, the Judge, became a man and died in your place so that he could say that the debt has been paid and you are free to go. And so the ingratitude that you show when you are when you refuse to forgive others is a slap in the face to God who forgave you. So forgiveness is costly, but it's not anywhere near as costly as what it costs God to forgive you and to forgive the one who offended you. Well, next, forgiveness is fundamentally a promise. Okay, This is important. It's fundamentally a promise. It's not a feeling. This comes from J. Adams' book, Forgiven to Forgiving. It says this, when God forgives, he goes on record. He says so. He declares, I will not remember your sins in Isaiah forty Isn't that wonderful? When he forgives, God lets us know that he will no longer hold our sins against us. If forgiveness were merely an emotional experience, we would not know what we were forgiven. But praise God, we do, because forgiveness is a process at the end of which God declares that the matter of sin has been dealt with once for all. Now, what is that declaration? What does God do when he goes on record saying that our sins are forgiven? God makes a promise. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a promise. When you forgive, you are promising to no longer hold your offender's trespasses against him. When you promise to not hold their trespasses against him, you're promising to no longer charge him for what he has done. This means that you're not going to allow yourself to dwell on the offense, okay, to not run over it in your mind over and over. You will refuse to cultivate the seeds of hurt. And rather, you will immediately pluck them out of the soil of your heart. You will relinquish all rights to get even. Okay, no more vengeance. When you promised this, you credit their account with forgiveness, much like Christ did for you. He gave you his righteousness. You make every effort to think well of him, to pray for him, to speak well of him, if possible. This promise, to some extent, can be made in the form of personal, a personal commitment in your heart, even if your offender does not acknowledge his sins to you. This is what sometimes refer, is referred to as forgiving someone in your heart, Mark eleven twenty five. 25. If he does acknowledge his sins and he asks your forgiveness, you will make this promise to him as you verbally grant forgiveness. You will also be making two more promises when he comes to you, and he asks your forgiveness, he acknowledges his sin, you promise not to hold it against him. And then you're also promising that not remembering his sins is that you're not going to bring up the offense to him again. If if you have brought it up to him, you've shown him his fault, he has acknowledged it and, says, and has repented of it, then you are not going to bring it up again to hold it against him. If you've forgiven him, there's no need to discuss it. Similar sins he might commit in the future will require a new confrontation and then a new process of forgiveness. And then when you forgive that offense, the same thing happens. You are not going to continue recalling his sins and throwing it up in his face. And then lastly, you're not going to bring it up with anyone else. You're not going to destroy their character and their reputation by bringing it up with a bunch of other people after they've been forgiven. Okay. Okay. But this is also important. So you're not going to bring it up. You're not going to... You're promising not to hold it against them. And and you're promising not to bring it up to their face anymore and throw it in their face. You're promising not to spread it to everyone else in order to destroy them. But it's important to understand that forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. If someone sins against you, you need to forgive them. But that person has to earn back trust if he's lost that trust as a result of a sin. Forgiveness should be immediate, but trust will take time. But you do need to understand that if the person has earned back that trust, then we ought not to withhold it if they have done everything they can to earn that trust back. So if we love someone, In the absence of hard evidence, we will put the best possible interpretation on what he does and we'll believe that the fruit of repentance that he has brought forth is genuine. And furthermore, whether or not you trust them anymore, you will always trust God to work through him to protect you from danger. So, forgiveness is not the same as trust. And forgiveness does not focus, lastly, on secondary causes but on the sovereignty of God. Okay. Forgiveness doesn't focus on how you've been wronged and the results of that. Forgiveness focuses on the sovereignty of God. You remember the story of Joseph. Joseph was greatly wronged by his brother, sold into slavery. He didn't see his family for something like 15 to 20 years, something like that. But the Lord had used it for good. What they had meant for evil, God meant for good. And Joseph was not bitter with them. He did not hold it against them. He understood that though they were evil, God had a good purpose and a good plan in that evil. Like Romans 8.28 says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Well, forgiveness doesn't focus on the evil that others accomplish and do against us, but on the goodness that God is accomplishing through all of that and using their sin even for his glory and ultimately for the joy of his people. Now, on another note, we'll talk about this next time. What do we do about bitterness towards God? If God's the sovereign one who's allowed all this to happen, what do you do about bitterness towards him? And we'll cover that in a minute or next time. But the next thing that we need to understand about forgiveness is that forgiveness involves an act of the will not of the emotions. If your offender repents, you must forgive him quickly. As Luke 17.4 says, if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you saying, I repent, then forgive him. You're to do it as an act of your will and obedience to God, and your feelings then will follow. But you don't wait until your feelings or else you may never forgive. You don't wait until you feel like it to obey God. Okay, again, remember forgiveness is the promise, right? It's not a promise of feeling better about it. It's the promise that you're not going to keep bringing this back up to yourself and dwell on it. It's the promise that you're not going to hold this against that person and keep bringing it up to them in order to punish them. You're not going to slander their name or gossip about them or spread these things and keep bringing up the ways in which this person has wronged you. But it's not saying that, you know, that your feelings, that you're promising not to feel bad, okay? The feelings will follow. As, you, as time goes on. So, now, it's, it's, <laughs> it's really an amazing thing where the disciples who heard this teaching, they realized, well, this is really difficult. They thought they needed more faith to do this, right? But Jesus is saying, no, it, this is the baseline of what it means to be a Christian, that the smallest bit of faith will enable you to do this. In in fact, this is kind of like the basic job description of of a disciple. (laughs) As you become a disciple of Christ, one of the first and primary things that that involves, what that means, is that you are willing to forgive others. And the reason is because a disciple of Christ recognizes how greatly they have sinned against God, and those who realize how much they have been forgiven will be willing to forgive others. He who is forgiven much loves much. Next time, we're going to focus on how to transform your feelings, because that's important. But for now, remember, forgiveness is granted only if a sin has been committed. And sometimes, the offending party must initiate that forgiveness. Forgiveness will cost you something. And it is fundamentally a promise, a promise not to bring these things up. And a forgive, but, but it's not the same as trust, Trust must be earned back, and forgiveness focuses on the sovereignty of God, not on the causes of our pain, and forgiveness involves an act of the will, not the emotions. Good stuff. Let's get into Acts chapter 7. Okay, this week's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 7, and it's an awesome passage in which... Stephen, the deacon, deacon Stephen, preaches this amazing message to the Sanhedrin and the council. And uh, this is after he'd been falsely accused of speaking things against the law and against the temple and saying that he's going to destroy the place and alter the customs that Moses handed down. So they have all these false witnesses come forward. And then in Acts chapter 6, verse 15 is brought to the council and it says this, fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. I think just um, like, you know, purely motivated, uh, unflinching. And he says this <laughs> now starting in Acts chapter seven, the high priest said, are these things so? And he said, hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And said to him, "Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you." And then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran, and from there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. and yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession, and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he said to him, The covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham, or he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs came, became jealous of Joseph, and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him, and rescued him from all his afflictions, and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt, and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard... That there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there, or, there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem, and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But at, as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, and there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers, so that they would expose their infants, and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away, and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of forty, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took a vengeance took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, your brethren, why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this, at this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and have heard their groans, and have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one whom God sent to be both ruler and deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness of 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us, for this Moses who led us out of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time they made a calf, and brought a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch, the star of the god Ramphah, the images which you made to worship. And I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight, and he asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who, would built, who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Okay, now Stephen starts to get into it. He's, he has summed up the history of Israel, of God delivering his truth, and the people of God constantly opposing God and his, his man, the prophet, right? Starting with Joseph's brothers <laughs> and all the people, the, 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 the Israelites always oppose the man of God. And now he's going to get into the point of his message here in verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Wow. That's bold. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Well, how do you think they responded? Oh, yes, Joseph. I'm so sorry. No, verse 54. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later become Paul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord Do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Man, in light of our talk about bitterness, here is Stephen living out the commands of Scripture, desiring the forgiveness of sinners, not wanting these men to be punished, even while they were stoning him. And cursing the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to The Gray Snapper. This is a podcast of Grace Church of Napa Valley. If you want more information, you can go to gracenapa.org. And until next time, keep swimming.